Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nail the Dorthro podcast. My name is Dr. Cole and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast off to go over high-yield orthopedic topics. Now this episode is part two to our first episode with Dr. Saltzman. This is kind of just a, a bonus weekly episode because I know that this is a mostly visual episode, but for those of you that like to listen to things too, we said might as well go ahead and put it on the audio podcast for those of you that would still like to or like the opportunity to listen to it to actually hear the words. But if you want to see the video uh, of how to read knee MRIs, just go to our YouTube channel. Just put in Nail It Ortho on YouTube and it will pop up. And if you want to see just clips, just put Nailed It Ortho clips and you'll also see that page. And we really go over a lot for uh, MRIs. Uh, we talk about how to you know look at meniscus lesions ligament lesions we talk about chondral lesions as well we even talk about some a little bit of oncology stuff at the end not really but you know like one or two things um, but it's an in-depth episode and we all hope you like it and again just to reiterate we have dr brian saltzman who took his time out of his day to break this down and a little bit more about him he did his orthopedic surgery residency at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. He did his sports medicine and shoulder elbow fellowship at Ortho Carolina. And if you listened to last episode, which is, I guess, part uno, you learned a little bit about the operative treatment of meniscus lesions. And this one will be how to read a knee MRI. So without further ado, please enjoy the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Salson, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are so glad to have you on and thank you for making the time out of your day to come on and be a guest. So welcome. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to uh, to this talk for a while and looking forward to having you you as a guest on, on this for a little while. And I think it is a, a topic that we'll touch on today that um, a lot of people are, I don't want to say confused on, but I think it'll be beneficial to uh, to a lot of people on, you know, going over MRIs and then, you know, kind of diving a little bit deeper into meniscus or menisci. Listen, <laughs> this guy, I think that's what it's Perfect. That sounds um, good, yeah. Typically, what we do before we kind of get into the topic is you just want to ask a couple of questions to get to know you, uh, and then we transition to what we'll be talking about today. So, first question I have for you is: I know you finished your training not too long ago, a couple of years in 2019, if I'm if I right. believe I'm correct, and right. you're now in attending, living the living the life we've all dreamed of living for for all of these years through our training. So I, I guess, you know, how, how has the transition been going from, you know, a fellow to an attending and how the first couple of years of, of practice been for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a loaded, but good question. Of course, you know, it's a big jump going from residency to fellowship, but a kind of an astronomical jump going from being a fellow to starting your own practice. And it's been great from my standpoint, and it's, it's really been helpful. I'd, I'd say a couple of things that have been helpful have been having, you know, uh, colleagues, future partners who have been really supportive of my practice and helping me to build it. And then also having my co-fellows and co-residents from the years before to, uh, to still bounce ideas off of and thoughts off of. But, you know, going from uh, having the support in training as a resident or a fellow to having everything fall on you is definitely a jump. 
but, uh, but, you know, I think all of us, by the time that we finish our training are pretty well prepared for it. And you kind of realize that. And, uh, and so it is, uh, you know, it is different, uh, but it's fantastic and it's really rewarding. Yeah. I think it's, uh, scary to think of now. I think, you know, we're all, at least when we're in residency, you know, kind of protected under the right. umbrella of our attending, which is a, you know, a nice thing, but, but when you're attending, it's all on you. And you did, you're attending now the same place where you did fellowship. Did you, did you know that coming into fellowship that you wanted to work there or was it just an experience and you're like, Oh, I love, I really love it here. Or how'd that go? I knew very early on that I wanted to be a, you know, an academic orthopedic sports surgeon. And so for me, it was less about coming here and knowing that this was going to be the place and more about coming here, getting ready for my training and kind of falling in love with the program and the people and the uh, environment pretty quickly. And so I had no idea coming here that I was going to be, you know, looking for a job here per se, or talking to them about that. It was a little bit serendipitous with the way that uh, um, some retirements happened in, you know, in the group before uh, I was starting my fellowship, but, uh, but I didn't have any sort of those conversations with the guys here before starting. And those conversations started about a month in or so. So um, no, you know, it was just, it was really serendipitous, right place, right time. And, uh, and you know, what I wanted, and, and at least I think what the group wanted out of, uh, the new hire that kind of worked out nicely. Oh, that's great. And I'm glad that worked out for you very well. Yeah, I appreciate that. And next question I have for you is what advice would you have for somebody that's wants to, or is interested in applying to a fellowship for sports, seeing as you are not too far, you know, far away from just recently finishing your sports application or, or for sports fellowship. Uh, what, uh, you know, advice do you have to anybody that's going to go out and interview or, or, you know, thinking of applying or doing a fellowship in sports? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, uh, you know, when we look at our fellowship applicants that are applying to the fellowship at Ortho Carolina, um, you know, there's a lot of great pedigrees out there and great places. And the things that often seem to stand out in talking with my colleagues as they're reviewing the fellowship applications is, you know, important letters of recommendation or phone calls that they make to people that they know who can really talk and say nice things and, and important, but kind of, you know, loaded important things about the applicants where they really know them. And so in your residency, getting along well with and getting to know and having them get to know you, the individuals in the sports department or whatever your department you're going into for a, um, from a fellowship standpoint, I think is really important because those people are really going to help guide you in the programs that you're looking at and, uh, and oftentimes can help make some connections that can be important in getting your foot in the door and then letting you do the rest. The other thing I would say is definitely is research makes a big uh, discerning difference at this point. You know, it's a lot of uh, the people applying to, our, to the program here at Ortho Carolina, similar to some of the other um, good programs out there, come from, again, great institutions for medical school and residency. And so that section on research really stands out these days, especially in some of the programs like ours, which are, are fairly academic and, and want to continue to be academic. And so having some good research know-how and, and some, uh, some efforts in the research world, not only, I think, make you more apt to understand what you're doing and why you're doing and becoming a better surgeon, uh, but also do give some, you know, a leg up on, uh, on uh, your CV in comparison to others that, again, might get you a foot in the door for an interview and, and then let you and who you are uh, build on that in the interview process. So it definitely is something that stands out in the CV is some of the, the research that you can do over the years in residency. And when you say research, are we talking more like 
five articles or 50? Like, what do you, like, what are we, what are we like leaning towards? <laughs> like, what's a good, uh, I guess, number or, yeah, I guess number yeah. per se. It's a, it's a, it's a question that's hard to answer. I, I think, you know, sometimes quantity is not only the important thing, but quality, right? So good, impactful papers with good, meaningful results with, you know, good, high impact journals and H factors and H index. But, um, but, but, uh, you know, that, that having three articles where you're the seventh author and you don't know much about <laughs> the paper in, you know, a small kind of third tier journal isn't as meaningful as being the first author on a AJSM paper, for instance, right? So right. number wise doesn't always fit the context of impact and value. But I also think understanding your research and knowing what you did is important. So if you get into an interview and you've got 30 papers, but you barely know anything about any of them because you weren't necessarily the most integral to the papers, that's going to show in an interview. And, and so, you know, again, I, I think that I think the numbers can get gaudy for some people. I, I had a lot of re residency um, publications, but a lot of them I did. You know, I really like research. And again, that's part of my role here at Ortho Carolina is uh, is the director of the, the research for the fellowship. And so um, I like research and I did a lot where I was the kind of the in investigator, primary investigator of the topic and first author and, and, and kind of, you know, leading the charge on them so I could talk well about them. But I think if you come in and you have 30 papers and you don't know much about them versus you have five papers and they're good quality and they're meaningful and you can talk about why they're meaningful, I think that's more important than uh, just a long CV. Mm, solid, solid tips. Um, we appreciate that tip. That was a good one. And the last question we have for you before we get into the topic of the day is, do you have any interest outside of orthopedics that you like to do? It could be sport, watching something, fishing, whatever you like to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty stereotypical in my love of sports and as part of why I'm <laughs> orthopedics. So I'm a Chicago guy born and bred. So I love my Cubbies. I love my Bears and I love my Blackhawks. Um, but, uh, but outside of that, a lot for me is family at this point, I've got a, a five-year-old boy, a soon to be three-year-old boy, and then a, a six week old girl. So oh, we man. just had our family recently and that's taken up uh, a lot of the outside of the work time. Well, congratulations on your recent, uh, addition. Thank you. Well, uh, awesome. Well, Dr. Salsman, let's get into the topic of today. And today we're actually going to talk about Again, something I think is very useful, and especially if you're going into sports or if you're just looking at MRIs in general, you should definitely know how to read MRIs of the knee. Um, so I guess, Dr. Salson, what in, in general, if we can kind of go over some MRI basics or how you look at, you know, MRI as a whole, you know, its utility, what can you kind of, I guess, impart or, or share about your experience using MRIs or how to look at an MRI? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll highlight what you're alluding to, which is, I think it's really important when you get into practice and, and then in the years leading up to it, to prepare yourself for when you get into practice, being able to read your old MRIs. You know, we, we like, uh, like most groups have radiologists that we can um, back up with and, uh, and have a read on these things. But there are times where there's discrepancies and being able to understand what you're looking at and the context of what you're seeing and, and why it's important and what it means and then how it translates to in the operating room is, is really valuable. So MRI is a, a tremendously valuable tool 
The nice thing about it, of course, is it does not have radiation. And so I'm, I'm fairly liberal if necessary in getting an MRI because unlike a CT scan in a young female patient, for instance, you don't really have to think about the consequences of it from a health standpoint, but there are consequences, of course, from a, uh, you know, a, a medical cost and utility standpoint. So those factor in, but largely speaking, it provides a tremendous amount of uh, acute injury information, a tremendous amount of anatomic detail, the soft tissues, some degree of the bony tissues, and it's pretty safe for patients. And so you highlight on there kind of, again, what the point of it is. It's a, it's magnetic related to the hydrogen atoms in the patient's body and how they spin and jump and bounce back. And so again, it, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of time for a patient in the scanner, uh, but it, uh, it provides a significant amount of information. Yeah, and I think that that point you definitely just made about the fact that it's, you know, no, it's not radiation, you know, it's not like a CT scan where you get dosed with radiation. And uh, it took a while for me to like sit and think about understanding like how actually the MRI works and how, you know, it's, it's, you, it's it has to do with those hydrogen items and, and when it pulses that, you know, that radio wave that the, those give off energy and that energy that it gives off goes into radio waves, which is pretty much used to create that image by the MRI machine. Now, I, I remember one thing as a, as a med student, I felt like it was a pimp question, uh, or at least for a med student as far as well as, you know, like first year residents as well, like which one's T1 and T2. And can you, can you, can you kind of go through like, you know, what T1 and T2 is and how you know the difference when you're looking at an MRI about these different tissues? Yeah. And so T, T1, you see there kind of on the left versus T2 on the right. T2, you think about H, I think about H2O, so your water is going to be bright. And so when you're looking at bony edema patterns like that picture on the on the bottom, the bony edema, that water is going to show up white, fluid's going to show up white, as opposed to the T1 where you've got fat being the highlight. And, uh, and it shows a little bit better anatomic detail. So essentially, you think of uh, T you know, T1 images being really good for anatomy. You see the tendons really nicely. The, M the uh, MRI T1 sequence of meniscus it should be that nice solid black. Whereas T2 is that fluid sensitive sequence useful for detecting acute injury, allowing you to visualize um, marrow and soft tissue edema. Uh, and, uh, and so T2 is gonna be what your eye draws to when you're getting an MRI for acute circumstances and injury. Uh, but T1 again is really helpful for defining better the anatomy. And when do you use like, you know, I always see like STIR images or like fat suppression images. When do you, do you order that, that you know, in your practice, do you order or, or what is it? Or can you kind of expand on that? We typically get, uh, you know, a T1, T2 and a fat sat or stir based. And, and it just comes down to some of the latter being a little bit more sensitive to detect edema uh, and, uh, you know, acute injury patterns and changes in the bone and the soft tissues related to, um, uh, you know, fluid and injury. Cool. Yeah, I think that uh, definitely helps out. And and one thing that I took me a while to figure out, not a while to figure out, but I, just looking at a bunch of different MRIs and trying to figure out what tissues are what and, and kind of how the normal tissues are supposed to look on an MRI, like the cartilage versus, uh, you know, the bone. And can you kind of just go over, you know, a little bit of how normal tissues look on an MRI? Yeah, so you, you've got a, a nice picture up there showing some of the features of things that a T1 image looking from a sagittal, for instance, you're going to see the white of the bone, you're going to see the black in the front of the extensor mechanism uh, attaching onto the top and bottom of the white patella bone. 
um, you're going to see the black meniscus as well as the black ACL and PCL fibers. Again, those um, low intensity signal sequences. And then the cartilage, you're going to see some degree of, uh, you know, kind of gray, darker sequence to those unless you've got acute injury or lack thereof. And then the muscles in the back, uh, you see there as being some of that kind of gray striation type feature into the black tendinous structures that they attach to the bone with. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's one of, and I like how you pointed that out. Like these, like the ligaments in the um, tendons are going to show up as, as black, you know, low, low signal structures on the MRIs. And, and these, and this is black on the outside of here. So you see that, like how we have all this white on the bone. Is this black, the cartilage or is that periosteum or what, what is this? The cartilage is going to be that kind of mid gray above and below. And so, yeah, you see that a little bit better there. Yeah. That's the cartilage layer with meniscus um, sneaking in, in the front of that, except based on where we're at in the sequence here, that's the transverse meniscal ligament. That's the intermeniscal ligament that you're seeing connecting the anterior horns of the menisci there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's more that kind of grayish zone up on the, the bottom of the thigh and the top of the tibia. So that grayish zone, so that's the cartilage and is it black that, uh, is that, is the black that subchondral plate that yeah, a lot of us hear about? That subchondral par portion of the bone before you get into the marrow, that white marrow underneath it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And I think that was definitely good. You can definitely see, you know, the different, um, the different look of the muscles, how ligaments are black. So then you always know that if the ligaments are black, then, and there's like bright fluid there, that's where a ligament should be. So that kind of clues you in towards, you know, a torn ligament per se, or, and, and you know. You do highlight in your context there, you say, except for ACL and distal quad. The ACL, if uh, as we get into the ACL pictures here, it's not quite as well defined thick black as that comma shaped thick PCL is, uh, but yeah. the, the striations of it should be, um, you know, should be in continuity with their attachment sites on the ACL footprint on both the femur and the tibia, and they should all be facing in the same direction as opposed to having some kind of um, waviness to the fibers or horizontal nature of the fibers. So um, it's not quite as thick and black. It's a little bit more, uh, you know, black and gray uh, than the PCL is by comparison. So that shouldn't be confused with injury to it necessarily. It's more just its general appearance. Mm. See, these are all, all gems. I hope people are taking notes. That was a good gem right there. Um, so, all right. So let's, I guess we can move on and we can talk about, I guess, different structures, what it looks like normally, and then what it looks like when there's injury. And, you know, one of the big things that we all, at least as a med student, these ask me all the time are, you know, looking at meniscus and seeing where the tear is. So can you kind of go through what a normal meniscus should look like on a, uh, on an MRI? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the, the first sequence that I tend to look for when I'm thinking meniscus injury is I'll go to the sagittal image first, just okay. because that's, that's your expectation of kind of that bow tie appearance um, going in and seeing the black triangle on the front, front and the black triangle on the back, right? So you see, again, it's black on both that T1 image you're pointing to as well as the T2 image bottom left. So you should yeah. see thick black no, you know, no significant signal change within it, but we'll get into what detects or what the, uh, defines a tear versus normal signal, but largely speaking, black, thick triangles. And as you get more towards the periphery, where you get towards the back of the C shape, those triangles will coalesce. And that's where you get your kind of bow tie appearance. If you see too much of where those triangles are attached, that's your discoid meniscus. If you think three dimensionally with a C on its side, 
where you're cutting slices, there should only be a small portion of where that um, uh, those slices still intersect with one another before they come out to the extensions of the C, if you will. And yeah. so if you think about having more of that C be like a D, you're going to have more of those slices where they're connecting. So three contiguous um, um, sagittal sequences where they're connecting is indicative of a discoid meniscus. Um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so that, that'd be like this, this picture down here in, in the middle. You get, we, so we could tell this is more towards the periphery because you can kind of see some of the continuation of the black. But if we saw this on three different images, we'd know, you know, this is, this is like, you know, that's a discoid meniscus per se. That's right. And, and, uh, and again, things to say on that picture you're showing, you know, you're more peripheral by seeing that fibula sneaking in on the bottom. And so that also guides you to say, all right, if I've got this one image, where am I in space? You know your peripheral because those triangles are getting ready to touch. You know your peripheral because the fibula is sneaking in. And you know your lateral because you're at the, the location of the fibula, in addition to kind of that convexity of the tibia here instead of the concave nature, more so of the medial side. So all of those are going to clue you in to say, where am I in space? Because on a sagittal single image, sometimes it's hard to tell. Yeah. And I think you just tested all this, you know, best seen on sagittal images. Um, I know, you know, I read and they'll say, you know, you should at least see when you're looking at different tears, you should at least see that, you know, that increased signal intensity, I guess, on, on two different images per se, in order to call it, I guess, a, a meniscus tear. Um, Correct. Anything you'll, else? And go ahead. Yeah, you'll hear uh, the definitions of kind of the grading of meniscus signal as well, because um, grades one, grade two don't even define a tear, but do highlight signal. So grade one signal is more that intrasubstance kind of globular appearance of some white inside of there that does not intersect on the top or bottom articular surface. So it does not go through the, the, you know, toward the femur or through towards the tibia. That is not a tear. That's some vascularity and just normal appearance of some of the fibrocartilage within the, the uh, meniscus at that location. Grade two signal is linear intrasubstance signal but it does not extend to the articular surface, either top or bottom. That is also not a tear. Again, that's more likely to just be some uh, perhaps degenerative changes within the intrasubstance or again, vascularity changes. But your grade three changes are where you've got tear that could be horizontal or vertical, but it touches the articular surface top or bottom. That's indicative of a tear. So there's a lot of times where that black triangle is not fully black, but if you don't have a line that goes down towards the cartilage on the tibia or up towards the cartilage on the, yeah, exactly, on the femur, then it does not designate, uh, designate a tear. Right. And then so now, you know, we're looking at this image here and we're talking about a longitudinal meniscus tear. And we're saying, I guess it's all the way on the right, this T2 coronal image, you see that that line that goes, that touches this, you know, this is articular cartilage, that kind of grayish. And right. this this white fluid that we see in between these two black, or what's supposed to be mostly black substances, which is our menisci. So that's showing our our longitudinal tear per se. That's right. That's right. And you you see that um, you know the three dimensions of the MRI is helpful in. Um, well, I, I tend to, again, I tend to go, if I'm looking meniscus, I'll start on that sagittal to see what I see in the, in particularly the posterior horn and try and get an idea if there's a tear, but it should be, it should be tear pattern that you see in two sequences, like you said, coronal and sagittal, for instance. But the nice thing is once you've identified that there's a tear, 
you really do use all three sequences to better understand the characteristics of it, which proxies into how you're going to treat that or might expect to treat it in the operating room. So if you see a vertical tear pattern on the sagittal and then you see this coronal image of that vertical tear where it looks very peripheral, right? More where the vascularity is for the meniscus and that longitudinal or vertical tear pattern, I'm looking at that and saying, all right, based on where that is, it's kind of red, red, white, um, dependent on the patient's age, the surrounding cartilage, I get an idea already in my head of what I'm going to see when I get into the operating room so I can better counsel a patient on whether I'm expecting meniscectomy or repair. Because it's, we're not perfect at that. I'm certainly not perfect at that, of predicting for a patient whether I'm going to be able to repair it or not. Now, I go in, and we'll talk about this with the meniscus repair, but I go in with a hope, right, or an expectation but largely speaking, a lot of times I can talk to a patient about the things we're talking about and still end by saying, I don't exactly know what we'll do in there, but I have a thought about it and I have an expectation. Um, right. So we'll get more in the, the repair part. But the axial image, I'll often look at last because sometimes it doesn't catch the meniscus in a perfect way. But when you see some degree of horizontal tear type pattern or vertical tear type pattern, that could be valuable to look at in the axial dimension, like a radial tear it can be helpful to understand how peripheral that tear goes because a small central radial tear is not the same as, yeah, perfect, is not the same as a tear that goes all the way to the periphery, right? A small right. central tear, so that's, you know, you're starting to see where that signal is going toward the periphery and how that functionally meniscectomizes the knee. So a tear that splits the C top and bottom apart from one another going all the way out into the periphery is the same as having no meniscus at all. So that's significant. And so even in a patient who is older, um, maybe that, that meniscus gets looked at a little bit different uh, just based on the nature of that injury pattern. Uh, and so again, that's where the axial image comes into play, even though a lot of times I think we ignore the axial image uh, in yeah. comparison with the sagittal and the coronal. Um, I will look at it for the meniscus because it does help me to get an understanding of in particular radial-based tears as well as um, uh, root-based tears at times. So in general, you start with your sagittals and you, you look do. at your kernels if you need to. And then you also, you pretty much use all the information you can get to get the best 3D image in your head of what's going on with the patient Correct. and their anatomy. I think the better you can go into a surgery with an expectation to yourself and to the patient with what you might be seeing and what you might be able to do with that, the better. And I'll tell you that um, something that I, I still do even now, two years into practice is I'll pre-op plan think of what I'm going to do, talk to the patient accordingly, get into my surgery, see what I do in the surgery and what I see. And then I'll go back and look at the MRI again. And I recommend that, you know, all the listeners in the training portion of what they're doing and, and beyond, but in particular in residency, I, I would do that. I did that all the time. I would look and see, what do I think I'm going to see three-dimensionally in the OR, see what I, whether I was right. And then whether I was right or not, I'd go back and look at the MRI again and say, all right, I know what that looked like now in the knee. Can I picture that from these three sequences now on the MRI? It's a good idea. I've, I, I have not done that. And um, I might start doing that, actually. I, I like that idea of uh, going yeah. back and in, in double or triple checking what you if what you thought is what you really thought. Correct. Uh, and OK, so just going back. So our longitudinal tears, we'll see because, you know, it's kind of like a straight up and down line, you know, mm -hmm. of increased signal in our in our meniscus that you see on T1 and T2s. Now, how do you tell the difference between that and a buckle handle tear? So bucket handle tear obviously is is a more significant injury because that tear has propagated to an extent that it's flipped out of place. 
from a clinical standpoint, these patients are going to look different, right? It's not just going to be rotational type pain with twisting or catching locking type symptoms. These often come into the office with a locked knee. If you see that central image, that's that double PCL sign, right? So you've got the black thick PCL in the back, and then you've got what looks like a little sister PCL underneath it. That's a flipped portion of meniscus coming over into the notch, sitting underneath the PCL and often pushing the ACL out of the way. So that again, clinically is gonna be significant and also factors into your time to, you know, time to get to the operating room being a little bit more urgent. Um, but, uh, but that's what you're gonna see on the MRI. You're also, as a, as a corollary to that, as you get out toward the periphery, you're gonna see an absence of tissue in the periphery because that tissue is no longer sitting where it's supposed to, it's sitting in the notch. So you're gonna yeah. see a smaller triangle out in the periphery because tissue is not there where you expect it. Right. So kind of like right here, we should expect like a little bit more black signal here, but just we have that increased white fluid there and our right. piece, our meniscus is flipped over into the notch right here, which is this black line. That's right. And so those are our bucket handle tears. Now, what about our, our horizontal tears? What clues you in towards that when you're looking at an MRI? So again, you see that horizontal signal on the sagittal image as well on the, in the middle, as well as the coronal image on the side. These horizontal tears, I'll, I'll tell you in general, we used to look at them as more degenerative type tears and largely they often still are. And so you might see these horizontal patterns in an older patient with degenerative type findings or sometimes around findings of arthritic changes in the knee and the compartment. Um, when it's seen you know, in an otherwise healthy knee or more acutely from injury, um, you, uh, you know, it can, it can behave a little bit different inside the knee, but again, these are often the ones where the board, uh, question that you get, or the OITE training question that you get is that these are the ones associated with those perimeniscal cysts, right? Mm. And so for cysts fluid to form, it's gotta be present for a period of time. It's also forming because these tears go out into the periphery and then form a cyst. Yeah, exactly. And then form a cyst behind it. Cause the fluid can extend out through the capsule into that little cystic structure. Um, these, these tears, again, you got to look at the context of the patient because it's going to look like a significant tear, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be addressed in the same manner or acuity. And if it doesn't fit the clinical scenario, right? So 65 year old with some arthritis with a horizontal degenerative meniscus tear with a little perimeniscal cyst, that's going to be different for me than a 20 year old who suffered an acute injury, who happens to have that finding with no cyst, right? Yeah. I'll tell you, um, and we'll get into it with the reparative parts, but I repair more of these in the right patient. I repair more of these than we used to give that credit for 10 years ago in your reading. And so you look at these often as being a description of something where you kind of take out smaller leaflets, right? You've got a top and a bottom. I tell my patients, it's like a hamburger bun. You've got a top hamburger bun and a, a smaller hamburger <laughs> bun underneath it, right? And so in the right patient, you just take out that smaller inferior bun and you're left with good, healthy, superior bun. But in some patients, those buns are similar in size. In some patients, the patient's younger and you want to spare meniscus and the tissues better. And so some of these now, I'll tell you, I repair more of these now than, than, uh, than I saw repaired in the beginning of my residency, for, for instance, with the people I train with. And, and I think in part, we know Aaron Critch's data from Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Clinic guys and Bruce Levy of, of some of the data on repairing these and kind of squeezing the, the buns back together and, and seeing that those can heal and restore continuity of the meniscus and the functional effect of them. But you see, uh, you see how these can be seen on an MRI certainly here. Yeah, for sure. And, and again, just noting that horizontal tear and then just our fluid filled cyst, you know, bright signal kind of has this little wall um, surrounding it. Now, one thing that I always I used to get you know tripped up on a lot is 
getting the difference between a horizontal tear and a radial tear. So what are some of the things that clue us into this as a radial tear and not a horizontal tear in, in, and on MRI? Yeah, so for, for instance, if you look at a sagittal image, your radial tear or a parrot beak type tear or radial tear out to the periphery, if you think about the plane that that's going in, that tear is more in the coronal plane. So you're going to see that on a sagittal image as a vertical white line, right? You're going to see yeah. it more in the central aspect of the meniscus as opposed to a vertical line in the periphery at the meniscal capsular junction of a, a longitudinal vertical tear. But that radial tear, you're going to see in line there as a bright white line straight up and down on the sagittal, whereas the horizontal on the sagittal image, as well as the coronal, you're going to see that in the, it, it, the tear is in the axial plane, if you will. So you're going to see the tear from the sagittal and coronal images. Whereas if you looked in an axial image, you would only see it if you catch it just right. So you think about which, which plane my tear is in, and it's through that MRI plane that you're not going to see it well, unless you catch it perfect, but you'll see it, you know, appropriately on the other two images. Okay. And, and, and then kind of looking at, you know, vertical flaps and, and, and noting that on MRIs, you know, what are, mm -hmm. can, you, can you touch on, you know, a flap and, and what's the difference between a vertical flap and a, and a bucket handle tear? Sure. Yeah. Some of these vertical flaps, you'll see a portion of, uh, of tear. Again, you can have a, a radial type tear where some of that central tissue flips over onto itself and sandwiches itself and then gets stuck up in the meniscotibial recess of the, the medial or lateral compartment. Um, as opposed to the bucket handle tear, we've got a large vertical tear that might would typically flip, uh, you know, towards the notch hmm. just by okay. the nature of where the tear is coming from. Um, you know, these, the, and, and yeah, you're highlighting it here. These are unstable starting often as a radial tear and then flipping onto itself, sandwiching it onto itself. These are often not necessarily repairable type tears also because they start in the kind of white zone, white red zone and flip onto itself. And, and like you're seeing there, yeah, you've got a great picture there that might have flipped onto itself in the meniscotibial recess on the MRI. You get into the knee, you flip it back over and you see, all right, well, this depending on where that radial tear exits, if it exits all the way in the periphery in a young knee with otherwise good cartilage on top and bottom, like that picture shows, that might be something you get more aggressive on in the young patient. But if that tear stops right where you're seeing it, that's, you know, poorly vascularized tissue that was out of place, being beaten up, that looks very plastically deformed, very rounded off edges, that looks more chronic in that picture you have there. That's probably something I'm going to clip out rather than trying to be heroic unless it's a really young patient to, uh, you know, who it's worth a try for a bigger radial split. Okay. And the difference between that, that kind of vertical flap versus these horizontal flaps on MRI, any, anything that you look for in particular? Again, it's just going to be, you're going to find a, a propagating tear pattern from the MRI and then yeah. look and see where, where you're missing meniscus that you think should be there. And that's going to give you an indication of where to look for it based on where the tear pattern is. Um, and, uh, and, but that tear pattern will, will exhibit to some degree of vertical or horizontal um, signal in the, uh, in the images that you look at to give you an idea of how that tear is behaving in origin. And say, for example, you're on a joint rotation, you know, you're getting a knee MRI. Uh, it's where almost all of the reports say complex, you know, complex medial meniscus tear. What do they mean by that? And, and what are what are we looking at on the MRIs for and when we know that, oh, this is just a complex tear? Good, exactly. And so so what you'll see in those patients, first, you're going to have x-rays preceding that to give you an idea of joint space loss and Kellgren-Lorenz changes. On the MRI, you're going to see the cartilage layers with some irregularity or thinning of the cartilage. 
and then you're going to see MRI sequences of that, you know, multi stellate type appearance of signal change that can indicate some complexity to the tear and multiple um, um, planes of tear. Um, but uh, but a lot of that's also going to depend on how the patient, who the patient is, and their clinical scenario. Right? If you see some of that complex tear pattern in acute injury in a 20 year old. Cartilage is probably going to look good. That meniscus tissue otherwise is going to look black and healthy, except for the portions of where the tear are. And that's going to behave a little bit differently in the knee and, and maybe looked at differently as a surgeon. But like you said, a lot of those degenerative knees that have some mechanical symptoms are often in the medial compartment, going to show those macerated grayish meniscal tissue with a stellate type appearance of tear pattern. Uh, and it's going to be something that's less amenable to reparative type discussions and more something you can go after if the patient is right, right? If they have rotational complaints, meniscus type symptoms, locking catching for me is a huge giveaway that there's meniscus pain uh, as, a, as opposed to just degenerative findings of the meniscus that you could otherwise ignore in the setting of significant arthritis. Okay. And, you know, say we have a young person comes in, reports that it's a root tear. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it, it took me a while to really look in and be able to say, okay, this is a root versus just, you know, more just a posterior horn tear. What, what clues right. you in towards a, a, a actual root tear on MRI? And, and we know more about this now than we ever used to know, you know, five, 10 years ago. And a lot of that is thanks to, to Rob LaProd, who was, um, you know, out at Vail now in Minnesota, uh, Aaron Critch and the Mayo Clinic guys, Bruce Levy have reported on this as well, quite a bit. Um, but, um, but we, what we used to think of, of as a posterior horn type tear, we're realizing now some of these tears are actually avulsions of the insertion site of the meniscus. And even when we used to identify that that was the case, we never really understood the degree of damage that that does to the knee. So the, the medial side in particular, the root attaches back to the back, which you can see on the coronal image of where it would go down to insert down back by the posterior medial aspect of the tibial plateau. And if that evulses off, um, you're going to see on the coronal image, that white signal that you're seeing there of where you would expect meniscus tissue to go connect onto the root. You've got a, a somewhat, excuse me, root equivalent type of an injury there where you have a little bit of root tissue left where that, where that is on the left. Exactly. Um, but uh, you've got a discontinuity of the meniscus to its attachment. And that's important because it functions similar to a complete radial tear. It functions as a complete meniscectomy. You lose all biomechanical integrity of the meniscus when it's no longer attached to the tibia. So on the coronal image, you're looking and seeing there on the sagittal image in the middle, you get what, uh, what's been described as the ghost sign. So you're looking sagittally and coming towards the notch area of the knee, the central area of the knee. And all of a sudden you get a, you get ghosted and there's no black triangle where there should be black triangle going to insert onto the tibia. And that's indicative of a tear that's allowed the meniscus to do what it wants, which is to extrude outside of the compartment. And so you're not seeing its attachment anymore and you're not seeing the signal of it coming down to the tibia. So you get kind of a white um, uh, absence of triangle in the back. Yeah, just right here. Just this should be nice black triangle here, but you're seeing all the fluid pretty That's much right. right where that meniscus should be attaching down to the tibia. Okay. And and you mentioned it just a second ago, but how often do you do you see like an extruded meniscus? Do you, do you see that a lot? And then what are some telltale signs on MRI for that? I'll tell you, an extruded meniscus can be seen in the setting of a root tear. It can be seen in a, particularly with chronicity where 
um, the meniscus again doesn't have its tether toward the central portion of the knee and so it starts to squeeze outwards. So if you see that it's an indication of tear and potentially of significant tear losing some, some of the biomechanical integrity of the meniscus. It's more likely to be seen on a chronic medial meniscus root tear for instance because the lateral meniscus has, um, has more mobility to it overall but it, it also has um, additional meniscofemoral ligaments in the back going front and back of the, the PCL that help to hold it in place even if the lateral root has torn off. And so lateral root tear by MRI standards can be seen but doesn't necessarily behave quite the same as a medial meniscus root tear where the tether to the tibia is the only thing it has at the root, whereas a lateral meniscus root can avulse off, but that meniscus can still be stable. But if it's extruded, it's indicative that the meniscofemoral ligaments are probably injured and it's losing its biomechanical integrity. And you see that here with some of the additional telltale signs of where the green arrow is there of overload to the lateral compartment. You're starting on the femur to see a small osteophyte formation as well. So that indicates chronicity, that indicates the degree of loss of that meniscus function, and you're seeing thinning of the gray cartilage underneath and on top of where the meniscus normally sits because you don't have that shock absorber there anymore to protect it. Yeah, you know, Dr. Selsman, I mean, I put this together and I, and I still didn't, I didn't pick up on the osteophyte or the thinning till you just said it. And I, I probably looked at this picture for a couple of minutes just, just looking at it. But um, no, I'm glad you broke that down even, and even said those uh, pointed out those other things on the image. So, you know, again, I learn a lot with these, uh, with these, you know, these podcasts as well. So I hope everybody that's listening or at least watching this is, is learning a lot as much as I am. And yeah. so say, you know, we, we talked about our perimeniscal cysts. Now let's kind of get into chondral lesions. What are some, uh, what are some things that you look for, for chondral lesions? Cause I found these at least at first, a little bit harder to note and see. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the more you look at it, the better you, you know, the better you get, but what, what are some things that you go through for your head? Yeah, definitely. When I'm, when I'm looking at cartilage on the MRIs, again, you're looking for where that gray zone has changed into white fluid signal from fluid in the knee where there's absence of cartilage. Things that are important to note are size, location, and then underlying bone changes and underlying bone marrow edema patterns, right? So you can have a partial thickness cartilage lesion or injury or changes globally in a compartment versus a complete cartilage loss globally or, or um, grossly, and glo uh, excuse me, focally or globally within a compartment. And, uh, and it matters where that is and what the rest of the knee looks like. It also matters whether the underlying um, bone has been involved when you're thinking about degree of injury, patient history and clinical scenario, and then also fixation or treatment matters. Um, but, uh, but some underlying bone signal changes are going to give you an indication, again, of chronicity and degree of injury and overload to that portion of the knee as well, right? So if you see yeah. an acute osteochondral lesion, you're also you're going to see bone edema behind it from the acuity of the injury. You're going to be looking also for that donor site, right? And so an example I would give is looking on your axial image at a patellar dislocation patient and, and seeing an osteochondral injury that suffered from the, uh, the mechanism itself, right? Of bouncing back into the trochlea before it comes over. And you're going to see a, a bone bruise pattern of kissing lesions on the medial facet and the lateral aspect of the trochlea. And if you see a uh, you know, a cartilage bony loss on the patella, for instance, you got to get an understanding of how much 
bone is involved, the size of that lesion, where to find it within any otherwise, because it's going to matter of whether it's something that needs to be addressed acutely, whether it's fixable if it's addressed acutely, and, uh, and if it's not, then how you need to treat that. Because if you have just cartilage loss versus cartilage and bone loss, which the MRI should give you an indication of, that matters in your cartilage restoration discussions when I talk to patients of cartilage surface treatment and transplant versus osteochondral, right, bone and cartilage type transplant yeah. discussions as necessary. So say, for example, like we're looking at this image right here and, you know, we yeah. see this is our axial T2, you know, of the knee and we see, you know, this nice gray and then there's no gray here. So we see that there's a large, you know, cartilage lesion on that on that medial facet um, of of this patella. You see, you know, a bunch of uh, a bunch of fluid in the joint here and then laterally, I guess you can kind of see a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of a, a, a cartilage lesion here. What, um, like anything else that I'm missing from this picture that how you would describe seeing this? Yeah, I think you would say, eyes? yeah, some of that is synovium and fluid going around the lateral gutter there. Um, but you're looking at some of those early cystic changes, it looks like kind of in, in the white uh, um, round areas of the bone. You're looking at some of that bony edema diffusely. You're looking and seeing that you do have some bone underneath that uh, cartilage lesion that's present um, uh, near the central and medial facet. Uh, and, and again, you're seeing how thick the cartilage is in the patellofemoral joint by some of the cartilage that's still present on the lateral side. Okay. So I want to, you know, just looking at and decide, I think this is a big thing is just kind of going through. And I think you were mentioning before, you know, how you have the, the bone bruising, you can see the edema in the bone here on, on this lesion. And if you look at the here, if you look at this gray, you can kind of see some some thinning of of the cartilage here. Um, anything else from this picture that you would that you would say or that you would note on? No, I think that's apt from that slice to to highlight what you said. Cool, cool, perfect. Um, anything else that you think is important regarding kind of looking at any OCD lesions? Um, I'll highlight from here which is what uh, what we're looking at too, as far as OCD and what we see here is a you know a pediatric or near pediatric patient with uh, physis being open or closed <coughs> as how it uh, portends to prognosis for these patients. But again, you're looking and seeing how big are these lesions, where is the lesion sitting, which you're seeing there as you're pointing to, and how much underlying bone is on that osteochondral fragment, because that's going to factor in again to whether this is a big fixable lesion where, where you know, I tell my patient I might, I might be able to go in and open and bone graft behind it and fix it with screws versus something that needs to come out and be staged to an osteochondral allograft transplant going forward. Uh, I know this isn't the scope of the talk, but is this, is this something that you would fix these these right here? Would you just try to get that with screw fixation, or do you think that's something that would need you know a staged procedure? In a young patient with a large lesion, it looks it's hard for me to tell if that's a little signal there that's indicating there's some comminution in that kind of osteochondral um, right uh, portion there, right? So it matters if it's fragmented versus a whole piece. But I'll tell you that, uh, especially in a young patient with open physes, the capacity for healing is really good. And so I'd really, really like to keep native anatomy where I can keep native anatomy, especially in a young patient. And so I, I try to fix those more aggressively than if this were a 30-year-old with an acute, you know, um, 
pivoting knee injury where the it knocks off a piece of bone and cartilage where that uh, that might have a lower propensity to heal with close physis older patient the cartilage might not be as healthy the bone might be more fragmented and that might be something where I, I expect more so to pluck it out and stage it to an osteochondral allograft if the lesion is big enough versus uh, an osteochondral autograft if it's small enough that being said I do a lot more in the vein of an osteochondral allograft as opposed to autograft, given some of the research that's out there, including uh, um, some coming from us. Okay. <clears throat> and, and next, and, you know, super common, or at least you hear about it a lot, you know, ACL tears. And, you, of course, when you're looking at the MRI, you don't want to miss an ACL tear. So what are right. some of the, you know, what are some of the telltale signs that this is an ACL what are you looking for? And, and I guess if you could describe these images and kind of what you see that, that, that clues you in. Absolutely. Yeah. So for an ACL tear, if I'm thinking ACL from the patient's history and I go pull it up, I'm starting with what you're seeing on the left, which is a T2 sagittal based image, because I think the T2 image is really nice for two reasons. Number one, you know, your expected appearance of the ACL, so you can look for it. And number two, and more importantly, you can see a pivot shift bone bruise pattern to the underlying bone from the shifting mechanism of the tibia going forward and externally rotating and coming back in. So you're going to see that distal lateral femoral condyle bone bruise and the posterior lateral tibial plateau having a corresponding kissing lesion of bone bruising on it. And so I'll pull these up for my patients when, uh, when I see them and start with the, the, te- uh, the sagittal T2 and be lateral going toward medial. And I'll get two or three slices in and already say, boom, I can tell you, you tore your ACL and we haven't even gotten to the notch, right? And that's because yeah. if that paper pattern is there, that's an ACL tear, bar none, 100% specific for it. And so that's gonna give you your first indication. Then you're gonna get central into the notch. There you go, that's the picture of it there. Yeah, that um, bone bruise pattern. That's perfect, exactly. Perfect. So that right there, boom, that patient tore their ACL and you haven't even looked for where the ACL comes into play, okay? okay. The, uh, um, the additional event, you get centrally into the notch and you're gonna see, unlike the PCL, which can buckle and kind of tear transversely through, Full thickness tears of the ACL often look like a bomb went off at that portion. And, uh, and you don't, you just see an absence of tissue or just complete discontinuity of tissue. Um, like you're kind of seeing there on the left, it, unlike the MCL or some of the other ligaments, the, um, the ACL just kind of blows up. And so you might see a femoral sided injury or a mid substance tear, but largely speaking, you're going to see a lot of signal inside of there and loss of continuity of tissue. Um, and it looks just kind of blown up. If you look from the coronal image, um, what you tend to see, what you should look for, one of, one of my um, now colleagues, former uh, attendings as a fellow, kind of called it the Eiffel Tower sign. So if you get into the coronal image, you should see the branching off from top to bottom of what looks like an Eiffel Tower for the ACL's insertion onto the tibia. And if you lose that and you have a split in it, um, you know, a horizontal split sectioning it off from its insertion on the femur or the tibia, um, then, uh, then, you know, you have a tear and you're starting to see some of the bone bruising on the lateral side of the knee there in the coronal fashion. It's not as striking as the, uh, the sagittal image where you see those kind of kissing pivot shift contusions, but that's where that bone bruising is starting to come in. Um, the, uh, if you want to get really nitty gritty, the axial image should show a nice interpretation of the, in particular, femoral sided footprint of the ACL. But I'll be honest with you, I've, I've diagnosed my ACL tear by the sagittal and coronal before I get to the axial. I think those first two sequences are more helpful. Um, but the, uh, the axial image, you can look for an empty wall, um, at that footprint, uh, uh, otherwise. 
and and is this is this considered empty wall here like where our, our acl should be coming yeah, and attaching gonna, right here correct you're going to see acl that should attach and instead you're going to see you might see acl fibers but you're going to see fluid that's separating fibers from the lateral yeah. wall and it right. should be a you know a complete fluid signal there is there anything else on MRIs that may tune you in towards an ACL that you may see? Here's one you're highlighting. Yeah, here's one you're highlighting, which uh, which we would see on X-ray too, which is kind of the second injury of uh, what we thought used to be peripheral capsule, and now we think is more anterior lateral ligament insertion that avulses off. Um, but uh, but again, that's very specific for an ACL injury. If you see that little bony fleck off of the lateral side on the tibia. Um, that's uh, probably an ALL type avulsion or, uh, you know, a capsular reflection type of avulsion we used to think um, that uh, that tears as a secondary restraint to the ACL tearing. Okay. And for these, for these cases where they, they don't necessarily call it an, um, an ACL tear, like, you, you know, you see the fibers, but then you see a lot of fluid in the fibers. You, you call that a tear still, or you just say is a, you know, just a, you know, just edema in there like how do you like how would you interpret these images and what, what goes through your mind it's a good question a lot of times you might see that the the radiologists for instance will put on a read and say you know uh diffuse edema that signifies perhaps chronic acl injury or chronic acl partial injury or, or remote acl partial injury it, it matters a couple of things it matters the continuity of fibers that you can find it matters the degree of signal and waviness of the tissue, for instance, to indicate that some of that signal is propagated through to discontinuity of fibers. It matters clinical context for how that knee felt, right? If you've got a partial ACL injury where one of the bundles are out, if that patient pivots and feels loose on Lachman testing and is a high-level athlete, I'm going to fix that before I let them fully pivot and injure their meniscus or cartilage. Uh, and then, uh, um, additionally, you know, you're, you're looking for that pivot shift pattern. So if you've got something read as a partial tear, but you've got a pivot shift contusion that that's functionally torn, right? If it, if it stretches enough or partially tears enough for the bone to knock up against itself in a pivot shift contusion pattern, that ACL is not functioning anymore. Yeah. And it's kind of just like using all your clues uh, you know, possible to, to make the diagnosis, just like you said, the bone bruise pattern, even if it's, you know, it's, it's red as, you know, some of the fibers intact, but if the bone bruise pattern is there, you know, that kind of clues you into, you know, it's probably, you know, ACL is, is really functioning as it should be. That's right. And I'll tell you, I, I often, you know, the radiologists are at a disadvantage because they don't know how this patient came in. They don't know their history and their story. They don't know their exam unless they're looking for it in the notes, but they don't always have those notes available to them. And so I'll not uncommonly, I'll, I'll call actually the radiologist and say, listen, here's kind of what I'm seeing. This is, uh, this is you know, I, I, take, uh, I take care of a division one college and often I'll get a stat MRI and a knee injury and I'll call and talk to the radiologist and say, hey, here's what the knee looked like. Here's what it felt like on exam. Here's this kid's story. This is a high level athlete. Now in that context, look at this with me and see if you agree with what I'm seeing or if we are still in disparity on X, Y, or Z, or if we're in complete agreement. And so clinical context can be really helpful too, to try and understand acute or chronic um, degree of injury, how the knee feels to you as the surgeon um, versus what we're seeing on a static MRI. Yeah, no, that's smart. I like that. I definitely... Yeah, you know, just like you said, sometimes you're just you're just giving some images and, and no story and don't really you know what to what to do with that. 
Now, are there anything else that you may see on, you know, on MRI that may tune you in to say, well, you know, it may not be a tear of the ligament itself, but, you know, there still may be an ACL deficient knee. Yeah. So that's what you're highlighting here for those with the video. Um, For instance, a tibial eminence or tibial spine injury, right? So the, uh, these are typically seen in younger patients because younger patients have a stronger ligament than they do bone surrounding it. And so rather than the ACL tearing, you might see that the bone surrounding it avulses off because that ligament is stronger, but you still have a pivot shift contusion pattern because the knee moved in a way that should have torn the ACL, but the the ligament was strong enough to do it. Um, So again, usually in pediatric patients, I actually saw one of these yesterday that I signed up to, to fix. Um, phyces, phyces will often be open as a result, right? Cause these are, these are younger patients, but you do see them in adults. I fixed a number of these actually in the last year in adults, 24 through 42. And I don't know how I found a 42 year old that had it, <laughs> but, uh, but she did. And it's surprising, but that being said, that age factors in to also looking at the integrity of the ACL, because when I book these, I know this shouldn't happen in a 42 year old. So I'm looking at the integrity of the ACL fibers on the MRI to get a sense and say, hey, how much did that ACL stretch before that bone pulled off in a 42-year-old? And going in saying, well, you know, am I going to see that there's bone pulled off, but also that ACL is partially or high-grade partial or even completely torn, and the bone fleck, you know, the bone piece happened to come off with it. So context of patient age is going to give you an indication of looking at the ACL fibers with it. Where again, in this one, those ACL fibers look pretty good on that left side. And that bone piece looks pretty significant. That's probably you know, one where you get in there and you say the ACL looks good. And, and this patient's obviously skeletally mature, but that bone pulled off with that ACL. And if you fix that bone back down, you've got a stable knee again, and you don't have to reconstruct the ACL. So, um, you know, again, you're going to see these behave functionally ACL deficient, right? They're going to be loose on their Lachman testing. They may not pivot and they also may not fully extend because these often pull up and incarcerate in a way where you lose the, you know, the patient comes in, my patient from yesterday has a 10 degree flexion contracture because there's a big piece of bone stuck in the front of the knee. So they can't get out all the way straight. So they don't have a wild pivot shift because I can't get them to pivot, but, uh, but they do have a positive Lachman because even that's obvious on, uh, you know, on a, a partially flexed knee. And besides imaging, I mean, on imaging, I know we'll see, you know, you see the bone and you'll see fluid get underneath it. So you'll see kind of that increased signal underneath there. Is there yeah. anything else that I know you see some bone edema as well. Is there right. anything else that may clue you in on MRI to the chronicity of the injury? Uh, you might see, you know, bony edema is going to help you with, with chronicity. Certainly the clinical history is going to help you with chronicity. Some of the, uh, x-ray findings actually can be really helpful to look for rounding off of that bone fleck to say, Hey, maybe this has been there for a long time. Um, in addition to a history that suggests that, um, but a lot of the bony edema, the pivot shift contusion pattern that can happen with it, the strain that you might see through the ACL, because it does get pulled on, uh, are going to indicate acuity. Um, and, uh, and then other things to look out for here as well is a trap meniscus, right? The lateral meniscus can get trapped underneath this fragment and incarcerated. And so that can be a reason, uh, um, for going in to fix this. If otherwise, you know, things might maybe question whether that's necessary, although a lot of times it is necessary. Uh, but it's certainly something that you're going to be looking for inside of the operating room so that you don't push that bone block down and, uh, get it to heal over incarcerated meniscus. Mm. That would be, uh, that would not be, not be good to say for yeah, lack of better terms. On that for sure. 
and I know we mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, PCLs and, and, and kind of, you know, how they look under MRI. How often do you see PCL injuries? I know it's typically, you know, trauma, you know, you know, car versus knee or dashboard versus knee or something like that. But do you see uh, PCL injuries a lot and then any telltale signs on MRI? Yeah, far less common um, than the ACL for sure. Dashboard type injuries definitely is going to stress that. You'll see some edema pattern in the front from either the dashboard hitting the front of the tibia or from a hyperextension type of an injury. So you can see some marrow edema pattern in the anterior medial femoral condyle or the anterior medial tibial plateau suggesting that hyperextension injury. I'll tell you, rarely does it explode like the ACL does. Um, except for in a multi-lig knee. So I, as well as a couple of my partners, we take care of the multi-lig knees that come into the Charlotte area into our trauma, our level one trauma center. And so anytime that you've got a, you know, a, a need that had a dislocation, you've got to pay attention to the PCL because often you're going to get a multi-ligamentous knee pattern that includes the PCL in the posterior lateral corner, for instance. Um, but that PCL might not look as dramatic in a non-multi-lig type knee and it might be more fluid signal with some buckling of the PCL as opposed to, again, that explosion type appearance uh, of the ACL. Okay. And we just kind of just touched on, you know, ACL, PCL and, and multi-leg injuries. And, and you'll just, uh, you know, see the, um, see the signs of, of both just being torn pretty much what we, what we just spoke about. Now, what are, what are your thoughts as far as MCLs and when to get an MRI versus not to get an MRI for MCL? It's a good question. If, if you have a, an MCL clinically in isolation with a valgus type injury and, and uh, some instability on exam, um, but a good endpoint, it really, it really depends on how much valgus instability at 30 degrees or 20 degrees and, and in full extension, which would be a, a highlight of a, a higher degree injury uh, with some post-remedial capsule injury as well, possibly present. Uh, but it matters how much instability in comparison with the contralateral side, what the endpoint feels like, and then any concurrent ligamentous injury. And so I have, you know, if I feel like there's a there's pain along the course of the MCL, it opens up a little bit more than the other side, but not much with a firm endpoint and an older patient with a history that uh, that uh, doesn't include a big swollen knee and then concerns for ACL integrity as well. And I don't necessarily go straight to an MRI on those. I'm, I'm willing to, uh, you know, trust my exam and my history and, uh, and treat it as a, you know, a grade one injury or grade two with a firm endpoint. But anything more than that isn't necessarily going to happen in isolation uh, and isn't necessarily going to heal depending on where the injury is. And so uh, I, again, with the lack of radiation in the appropriate patient, I have no problem getting you know, an MRI um, that, uh, that might be over necessary rather than, uh, than missing something that's important or might be you know, included with a, uh, uh, concurrent ligamentous injury that you don't want to miss. It's kind of the same thing as, uh, you know, getting a CT scan for, or excuse me, going in for an appendectomy, right? Our general surgery colleagues out there will, will say for every X number of, uh, of true appendicitis cases, they're comfortable going into a normal appendix at some degree. Uh, and certainly the MRI is pretty benign. Okay. And I know we mentioned kind of some of the grades of injuries. Can we quickly just touch on some of the different grades and how and what you would just notice on the MRI? Absolutely. So um, grading of injury, again, is that kind of three grades for ligamentous injury uh, on, uh, on sprain. So grade one is going to be edema about the fibers, but those fibers remain intact in continuity. That's kind of what you're seeing there, a little gray in there, some fluid underneath and superficial to it, but the continuity of fibers at their insertion points. 
A grade two is going to be some degree of partial thickness injury. So it's going to open more. There's going to be some discontinuity, but some continuity of fibers. And uh, obviously those are going to be more unstable, but a full thickness grade three lesion uh, is going to be your unstable, lacks fibers. You see the waviness there of where you're pointing. Um, and uh, But it's important there to see the context of the injury. Again, concurrent ligamentous injury like the ACL that can often happen with this. And then seeing where this injury occurs from, right? If it's proximal, it, there's a potential for healing capacity from a proximal injury, even a grade three injury. But a distal injury often will slingshot back accordion up like you see there and can develop what's called a center lesion, which is our uh, analogy to what, uh, what is seen in the thumb with the thumb UCL, um, which, uh, which can get incarcerated over, or excuse me, the, uh, they can be blocked from their insertion site by the PES tendons. And so you gotta look out for where the PES tendons on, are on the MRI uh, and, uh, and see if you, know, if you think there has any capacity to heal, uh, but it can't certainly heal on the tibia if it's blocked from it. Okay. So again, things on the on these grade three where actually a vols is off, you see this this kind of like you know black line. You, just like right. you say, it gets kind of wavy. You see the uh, meniscus maybe sublux or displaced. You know where then where it should be. You see that that bone edemment. You know you kind of have got to have a high suspicion for any other uh, injuries around the knee. That's right. And those two things that you highlighted, right? Possible injury to the meniscal capsular junction of the medial meniscus, given the investment of the deep MCL. To its meniscus and uh, to its meniscus um, connection there at the meniscal capsular fibers, and so a, a true complete MCL injury. Um, when uh, you know when I reconstruct, for instance, I, I reestablish with my reconstruction that relationship between deep MCL and uh, meniscus uh, uh, underlying it. And then the other thing you said, which was astute, is bone bruise pattern on the contralateral side of the knee. You go into valgus, and you're going to get bruising on the the lateral side of the knee as that medial side jackknife open. Yeah, and, and just to double check, so are we saying here that this is our superficial MCL and then our deep MCL, you know, in layer three are kind of that capsular thickening, which, you know, helps, it has some connections to the meniscus. So, you know, that exactly. meniscal capsular junction would be kind of, this would, would be kind of somewhat what we consider our deep MCL. And then this here is what we kind of consider our superficial MCL. Is that correct? Yeah. I think that's probably right based on that single image and, and, uh, and it highlights for you that the, the superficial MCL inserts as far as six, you know, five, six centimeters down on the tibia. So it's, it's a, a distal structure. It's a posterior medial, uh, po it's somewhat posterior, but it's also quite distal where it inserts. And so again, that highlights into where you're looking for that tissue to slingshot back from, uh, and also where you need to reconstruct or repair it to. Okay. And just a couple more things. We talked about the medial side. We talked about the middle of the knee, ACL, PCL. We talked about chondral lesions. Uh, we talked about meniscus. And I know it's very, you know, it's going to be harder to difficult, harder to identify different structure, identify posterior lateral corner injuries. So what do you look for when you're, you know, you have the patient, you come in, you know, they, they, you think they have, a, they have a positive dial test, they have, you know, a lot more external rotation, they're, they're in pain. Uh, what are some things that you look for when you order an MRI to clue you in towards a, a posterior lateral corner injury? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, this one, I start with my uh, coronal image when I'm, when I'm looking at the posterior lateral corner, uh, as we're seeing here, the posterior lateral corner obviously includes the popliteus. Uh, the, the FCL, the fibrocollateral ligament, as well as the popliteofibular ligament. I'll tell you that, uh, that my radiology colleagues are far better 
at identifying an injury to the popliteofibular ligament than I am. Um, I think that's a hard one to see on all patients, but certainly the LCL with, with the white arrow and the popliteus um, in that uh, previous image was the, um, the yellow arrow. Yeah, exactly. Um, th those are a lot easier to see their insertions on the lateral condyle and the popliteal fossa just distal uh, and anterior to it. Uh, and so that's the popliteus that's trying to go towards insertion site on that little dip in the lateral side of the condyle there. Um, and, uh, and then the, the lateral, uh, excuse me, the lateral epicondyle having its insertion site just posterior for the fibular collateral ligament going down to the, the fibula and could be a bolus off the fibula or torn off of the, the femur either or. That second image you showed highlights a popliteofibular ligament injury. Again, I, it's hard to see those. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> There was a big arrow. I don't know if I would have, if I would have picked it up to tell you the truth. Uh, that, that's one where I use my radio, radiology colleagues' positive arrow sign if they put one on. <laughs> uh, but if you have that, you know, if that's injured, a lot of times you're going to see some degree of injury to either or both the, the FCL and the palpatius, which are much easier to see. Um, and uh, and so functionally speaking, if you've got injury to those, you've got a posterior lateral corner injury, right? Right. And, and just to wrap up here, just any. Uh, how often do you see, you know, any any type of, uh, you know, synovial disorders, and what do you pay attention to when you see it, you know, in your practice? I don't see a ton of them in my practice, and and probably it's just a component of the frequency with which these come in, which is low, right? It's not a terribly right. common thing, uh, and uh, and uh, some of them might be, you know, around to some of my my colleagues, and some of them also might get their way from a primary care doctor who ordered the MRI and sends it to a tumor surgeon which is a very legitimate and appropriate thing to do, right? On, on, on these, as a sports surgeon, I'm not so cavalier to suggest that I know all and, and I'm comfortable <laughs> with just assuming that the radiology read is saying PVNS and no way it's anything else. So I have, you know, I think it's important to have good colleagues. I've got a, a close friend and colleague who is a tumor surgeon over at, uh, uh, you know, at our, our sister institution with Atrium, who I call about these kinds of things when they come up. Uh, and I'm not uh, shy about talking about whether a biopsy is necessary before going in to take these out. But they're certainly not super common, but they're really striking. And uh, and those you know dark T1, T2 sequences for PVNS are all over the back of the knee in particular and the suprapatellar pouch. Um, they often invest in the back of the knee, which is somewhat daunting as a you know as a young surgeon to plan to go into the back of the knee for any reason. But oh, that's scary. It, yeah, it hides out back there and it goes like you see there in that kind of floral pattern and spongy pattern going around and, uh, and can be quite striking. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are, um, you know, you, when they don't show up in your office, you, you try to send them just like you said to the oncologist who sees a, you know, a lot more of these and kind of, you know, knows, um, you know, a little bit how to, how to better possibly treat the patient. Uh, now Dr. Salzman, I think this was a, a great, you know, a, a great, you know, information and talk regarding how to read a knee MRI. I hope the people learned a lot. I definitely learned a lot about this. Uh, we definitely appreciate you coming and talking about uh, the, you know, the knee MRI, how to read it, and, and even the little nuances and things of what to look for. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Hopefully that was informative. It was a good review for me too to go through. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode with Dr. Saltzman on the knee MRI. Congratulations if you made it all the way to the end of this episode. Uh, listening via audio, which is impressive. So I am uh, thanking you for listening all the way to the end. And please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and please go leave us a review and let us know things you like, things you don't like, and things you think we can improve on. Until next time, we will see you next week.